This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Coming up on Radio EcoShock, two heavy hitters. We have the expert on past mass extinctions, and maybe the present one, scientist Peter Ward. Then climate scientist Paul Beckwith joins me. There is serious news about plankton, the tiny ocean plants that feed the seas and provide most of the oxygen you are breathing right now. I'm Alex Smith. Welcome to Radio EcoShock. Is Earth designed by life for life? Or is this a casino of chance where catastrophe decides who survives? Those questions and more this week with Dr. Peter Ward on Radio EcoShock. I can tell you Peter is a professor at the University of Washington. He's a paleontologist. He's a specialist in the long history of Earth, its climate, and its periods of mass extinction. In my opinion, Peter is also one of the most underestimated minds in American science. I know he'll blush when I say that, but his 11th book shook me. It's called Under a Green Sky, Global Warming, the Mass Extinctions of the Past, and What They Can Tell Us About Our Future. That book presents the best theory we have on the mechanism of great mass extinction. And that was in 2007. Two years later, he surprises again with the Medea hypothesis, which we'll touch on. And his 2010 book, The Flooded Earth, Our Future in a World Without Ice Caps, stands near my desk as a standard for the public. And in 2015, he published A New History of Life, The Radical New Discoveries About the Origins and Evolution of Life on Earth with Joel Kirschvink. It's radical science. We'll find out why. Peter Ward, welcome back to Radio EcoShock. Well, you're right. I am blushing. (laughs) Okay, well, I've saved up some serious questions for you over the past few months, which touch on your string of books, and I'd like to begin by revisiting your now 10-year-old theory of how a massive extinction on land and sea creatures happened. Please describe the organisms that created a poisonous atmosphere for a time on Earth. Well, they say that the meek shall inherit the Earth, and I think maybe that is just our underestimation of bacteria as being meek, they certainly run this world in terms of elemental cycling. They run the world in so many different ways. But I guess if whenever you say don't make Mother Earth really mad, you're really saying don't don't enrage the bacteria. It's the microbial world which has gathered together to put forward some really nasty characters that in some have been able to produce these global catastrophes. And you've dived into a lake that had that kind of what I would call anti-ecology, for us at least. What was that like? Well, there are several of these, actually. Uh, The one that I know best is in Palau. It's a series of actually small lakes where on the surface you have these fantastic and marvelous jellyfish. But down beneath, we find a completely different group of organisms. Um, They're microbial they're scummy, greenish in color, and you're diving down through crystal clear down into this green goo. And you're also diving down from really the metaphor for our modern world, one full of animals, down into a world that was that before animals, the Precambrian world. And these, of all the microbes, are at least for we animals the most devastating because they produce hydrogen sulfide, very toxic that 
nasty smell from rotten eggs, which is hugely poisonous to us. It's produced through normal respiration by these microbes, and it does move upward into the other parts of the lake, so the whole place smells like rotten eggs, at least faintly. And do we know where these sulfur-based organisms came from? Were they here on Earth before the great oxygenation event, or could they have arrived from outer space? Well, we certainly know they're among the most ancient organisms on Earth. And any one of us, uh, I know you are located in British Columbia, it's not very hard to go find some. Simply go to a beach, dig down through the sand, even for six or ten inches, and you'll hit this black, gooey layer, and you can smell the noxious sulfur coming out of it. The fossil record of these is very poor, but we have a microbial record that we can use from actually what makes oil called biomarkers, and we find this oily residue all the way back in rocks over 3 billion years in age. And in fact, some people now believe that these sulfur-producing organisms were at least very close to what the very first organisms on Earth were. Now, whether they came from meteorite from space or whether they originated here on Earth, uh, you can make arguments either way. So they're lurking, just waiting for the right conditions. And what are those conditions? Well, they're strange organisms in that they really thrive in places where there is no oxygen. So this is where we find them on these beach locales. Um, the top 10 or 15 or however, however many inches of sediment where you find hanging out the clams and worms and all the stuff we're used to, you go down deeper very quickly. If it's a thick, muddy sand, no oxygen can diffuse down into it. And so you find this oxygen-free environment, and that's where these things do best. They cannot live in free oxygen, but they certainly can live in places with very little oxygen, and they do, and they thrive. All right. Now, on that note, a few weeks ago, I interviewed the Russian scientist Sergei Petrovsky, who's now working in the U.K., and his work suggests that phytoplankton, which produce the majority of the world's oxygen, could thrive as warming progresses up to a point, and then many species could go into extinction. There is a tipping point there, he says, and the paper is called Mathematical Modeling of Plankton, Oxygen Dynamics Under Climate Change. Now, if that's true, would that relate to your theory of deadly changes in ocean life? Well, absolutely. What the really lethal limit for the phytoplankton will be, there's a couple things. One would be there's not enough carbon dioxide. Well, we certainly know that's not the case. But secondly, it's temperature. What happens for many of these phytoplankton actually have to have oxygen. We know that the warmer the water is, the less oxygen it can take up. It holds less oxygen. Cold water has lots of oxygen. Warm water doesn't. If we keep warm in the oceans, we lose oxygen out of them. We finally get to a point where there's no oxygen, and you're killing off the vast majority of phytoplankton, which themselves actually thrive in oxygen conditions. Sergei Petrovsky told us he had not yet checked his model against the paleoclimate record. Peter Ward, are you aware of any dip in world oxygen levels in that record since the great oxygenation event 2.3 billion years ago? Has it happened? Oh, yes, it's happened multiple times. Uh, each, each of the great mass extinctions, in fact, of the last 500 million years has been proximally caused by a reduction in oxygen and we find these, these conditions which cause oxygen to go down are themselves related to enormous changes in the geological history of the planet. 
if you have a case where you are suddenly exposing, let's say, lots of minerals that are already reduced, in other words, they haven't been turned to rust, so let's say we have lots of iron before we put it in oxygen and let any water go near it, expose lots of iron-rich sediment that is in that chemical state, and you draw oxygen right out of the atmosphere. The history of the Earth showed this early on. We have huge deposits of what are called banded iron deposits. And in fact, the richest iron deposits that we find around Lake Superior and much of Canada were deposited over a billion years ago in conditions with very low oxygen. So we know that this has periodically happened. In the last 500 million years, the lowest that oxygen got was about 10%. It's 21% now. So it hasn't gone down to zero in the last at least six or 700 million years. Okay, I'd like to move on to a question that touches on your book, The Flooded Earth. In Robert Scribbler's blog, he's just a blog that I love to read, Robert Marston Fanny says sea level rise has accelerated, quote, from 2009 through October 2015, global oceans have risen by 5 millimeters per year. And he cites data in a graph from Aviso, A-V-I-S-O, the satellite altimetry data site. But on the other hand, Peter, a very new science has come out suggesting a drier state of land is soaking up more moisture than before, limiting sea level rise. And that comes from work by J.T. Rager, a researcher with NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. So we have two different points of view here. Peter, what do you see happening in this matter of short-term sea level rise? Well, there's far more than two. I think you're probably going to have a point of view from virtually every scientist who looks out there. I mean, the nice thing about those two examples is is they're both really interesting examples of, first, how good our equipment is. Can you imagine that you're able to measure through satellite technology such a tiny change in sea level? But secondly, the other aspect that the land is drier Uh, I don't think many people have really touched on that in the past. It's just one more example of how complicated it is to arrive at conclusions. I personally would be very much afraid of trying to make any sort of conclusion on a five-year record. Sea level rise is so slow. And the bigger problem with sea level rise is it happens at different rates in different places. Uh, The west coast of North America has a much different sea level rise than, say, the east coast of North America does and a difference, again, from the Gulf of Mexico, and very much different from the Indo-Pacific. So it's complicated. And we found this with temperature. It isn't so much the global mean that matters. It's what happens where you are in in the different regions and different countries. I guess the same is true of sea level, just the way you describe it. Yep. They say that all politics is local. Well, so is all environmental change. Really, you go back to ever-smaller areas, and certainly the sea level rise conundrum is facing different countries with different aspects of the equation. In the long run, and by the long run, I mean certainly over the next century, everybody is going to be affected by it, and there's no going back. It's certainly not going to start going down again. But the question about rates is just that which we touched upon, that we need longer periods of observation to really understand the trends And the other thing is there's always seemingly some brand new bit of data, just like the dry land aspect, that perhaps slightly changes things. It's the long-scale picture, and and here is our biggest problem, because no politician is going to think in 50-year intervals. And when we start thinking about what is going to be the future of the human race over the next centuries, trying to get anyone to think about this, 
I, one of the great tragedies of, of recent history, I think, is going to go down is this recent U.S. Supreme Court ruling. This is a disaster. I mean, this will be, I think, marked in history in the future as one of the great disasters. Can you tell our overseas listeners what that ruling was? Yes, the United States, after a huge amount of negotiation back and forth, and one of the really brave acts of the Obama administration, worked out a deal with China. And these, as the two biggest emitters of carbon dioxide, made an actual agreement that would slow the rise of greenhouse gases. We're not saying anything about stopping it. We're just trying to slow the rise. But even that was struck down by the U.S. Supreme Court. And what was so surprising about that ruling is that the normal business of the U.S. Supreme Court is to make rulings when lower courts have made a decision. But this was a highly politicized move by the Republican-led faction of the U.S. Supreme Court. It was a five-to-four decision, and they made this ruling even before lower courts had decided upon it. This is such a slap in the face. It is also a signal that the full court would definitely remove these particular conditions. Now, the wild card, of course, is the death of the most conservative of the Supreme Court justices, Scalia. But this, in a way, will make things even worse, because now we're going to have four-to-four votes in all probability. And when there is a four-to-four vote, the prior rulings are just left in place. You are tuned to Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex. My guest from the West Coast is Dr. Peter Ward, scientist, author, and expert in past extinctions. He's from the University of Washington. Moving on, starting in the 1700s, as you know very well, scientists, especially geologists, described the world as a, a gradual continuum where the present is the key to the past. The opposite theory, called catastrophism, was left for fringe writers like Emanuel Velikovsky, maybe. But where does your new book, A New History of Life, fit in? Well, I guess that makes me a fringe writer. Darn it. (laughs) I was always suspicious of that. Uh, It's interesting. Another so-called fringe writer was uh, a man named Lamarck, who was an evolutionist way back during the French Revolution. And just as we are starting to see revolutionary new ideas about geology, so too we're beginning to understand some very revolutionary new ideas about evolution that themselves interact very much so with this whole idea of catastrophism. I personally think that what we call uniformitarianism, and there's a word that will make you a lot of money in a Scrabble tournament, uniformitarianism suggests that to understand anything of the past, you have to invoke modern-day processes. But I was just thinking about these past mass extinctions. Let's think about a world where the surface of the oceans is filled with these tiny microbes that produce hydrogen sulfide. There is no ocean on the planet that shows that. I mean, the closest thing we have is the Black Sea, yet even there we still have a pretty thick oxygen layer up on top, enough for fish. Well, trying to invoke uniformitarianism to understand these times of very low oxygen surface oceans just can't be done trying to understand what happens after a giant meteor impact, the effect it has on climate, that just can't be done. There are case after case after case where you just cannot use the modern to understand the past. And unfortunately, there are case after case where I think we won't be able to use the modern to understand future history as well. 
And I presume this new book also originates from your earlier work, The Medea Hypothesis. Talk to us about your ongoing argument with James Lovelock and the Gaia Hypothesis. Well, much of that comes, again, from this idea about uniformitarianism, but the Gaia Hypothesis comes in several forms. It goes from what they call extreme Gaia, where the most extreme Gaia hypothesis or theory, as Lovelock says, is that the Earth itself is a superorganism and is alive. Uh, going back down the scale, much of what the Gaia hypothesis research did, though, was very good. We began to understand a great deal about carbon cycling. We know much more about how nitrogen and other elements move through systems, and much of that was really stimulated by Lovelock and other ideas. Lovelock was trying to understand how atmospheres respond to the presence of life. But the scary thing to me about Gaia was this idea that um, life would fix it that we can break the atmosphere by chemically changing it, and that life would find a way, as they said in Jurassic Park, old Dr. Malcolm, to bring it back into an equilibrium that's better for life. I really don't think that's the case. And how does your new history of life, what does it say about Darwin and the theory of evolution as the primary narrative of life's development on Earth? Well, one of the real interesting and, to me, in a way, scary aspects of biological research has been the research into a field called epigenetics, not just plain genetics, as Mendel first originated, but epigenetics suggests that something entirely non-Darwinian. Darwin, as we know, said that the way that organisms evolve is that you have natural selection, that an organism will produce more offspring, a species will produce more individuals than its environment can hold. There are just too many, and some will die. But Darwin never thought that any change that could happen in your life, other than your own death, would affect evolution. What if, for instance, something in your life completely changed your genes, so that if that event had not happened, you would have children that are different than they otherwise were? Well, this is what epigenetics is suggesting, that there are subtle and sometimes not so subtle changes to our sperm and our eggs that are produced by events in our lifetime. Darwin rolls over in his grave over and over and over every time a new research topic in this comes out, and increasingly it's being shown that this is the case. So how would you describe this book for us? (laughs) Anytime you try to tell yourself that something is new, pretty much you'll find out from your audience that, no, it's not new. Some had already found it out a long time ago. And there's the hubris in trying to say that you're trying to do something differently. Luckily or happily, some of the predictions that we've made and I've made in the past are coming true, but most unhappily for me, others of them are really coming true. In 1994, I published a book that was called The End of Evolution, and certainly this epigenetics is suggesting that evolution is changing. It's certainly not the end. That wasn't my title. That was the publisher's. But the prediction back in 94 that we would see a drastic decrease in uh, overall biodiversity has certainly been held up in the recent book, The Sixth Extinction, is just a replaying of that 94 book of mine over and over, and it's unfortunately the case. So what we try to do in this new book is to marshal, based on the newest scientific discoveries, ideas about the origin of life, about how early life was challenged by changing atmosphere, uh, trying to look at what lower and higher oxygen meant during the, the period when animals first appeared, and trying to give some predictions then 
both about the future, but also pointing out the greatest dangers affecting the biosphere and how atmospheric change, much as like we're seeing now, are themselves a terrible, terrible portent. I want to talk to you about something rather strange about Google and the way the web tends to warp things. Uh, You know, when I talk with some of the world's top scientists, and I do, it's not uncommon for them to mention your theories. And Radio Ecoshock listeners ask about you. You've been on PBS, Coast to Coast AM. You helped Animal Planet. But if I Google Peter Ward and climate, the top couple of pages refer to a man who really is on the fringe of climate science. Do you know who I'm talking about? Absolutely. There's a funny story. He's pretty unhappy with me. And we, at the, the annual meeting of the Geological Society of America, the other Peter Ward, who certainly doesn't hold views that I subscribe to, had a talk, and he had, was given one of the prime slots. And the, the room filled up, and he stood up, and then people were saying, wait a minute, <laughs> that's not Peter Ward. And others of my friends were going, my God, Peter, you've gone mad. Why are you espousing this crazy idea? What is wrong with you? Um, we have to use our middle names. Mine's D. I think his is J. Yeah, we, we run into each other, and it used to be sort of funny, but he, he doesn't see the humor in it anymore. He seems rather angry, as a matter of fact. Well, listeners, Dr. Peter Langdon Ward is a volcano expert, and he brings out the theory that volcanic eruptions and depletion of ozone and chlorinated substances cause global warming and not fossil fuels. So, yeah, definitely a fringe case. Do you think, Peter Ward, the real Peter Ward, that human greenhouse gas emissions have stopped the next scheduled ice age from happening? I really suspect so, and I think most climate scientists are also... In that point of view, just we really understand that it still amazes me how such a small change in a number of molecules in air can have such a, a world changing effect. I mean, we're talking about hundreds to thousands of molecules among the untold billions. When you're talking about parts per million or parts per thousand, and the slight changes that can cause atmospheric carbon dioxide change to produce huge, huge climate effects. It's so surprising to me how unbelievably powerful carbon dioxide is, and even more so methane. This is why this leak that I'm surprised has not gotten more press, this gigantic methane leak that has been taking place in California for months, has received so little press play, really. And yet this is a catastrophe of great, great size. Wow, I agree with you. Okay, now, if life bumbles along through these long periods between catastrophes, and the catastrophes may be of life's own making, where do you think we are now? Are we on the edge of a next mass extinction, or could that be thousands of years from now? Well, I think you hit the right idea that I think life in some ways is like the the redoubtable British. You know, they're going to bumble right through it and get through it. Um, We are producing huge negative effects. But at the same time, there are so many people, and I will take the moment to make you blush, such as yourself, who are doing so much to make things better, that through science and through education and through just a change in consciousness, people are changing the way they live, that we are reducing our footprint. Both are happening at the same time. There are more and more humans, obviously, and this is causing great changes on the planet. And yet the rate at which people are understanding the negativity that we can do in large numbers, I think, is also helping things get better. 
Okay, for me, one of the huge questions is knowing what we know is is whether global warming is reversible. If we could find a technology or or change civilization so that we reduce carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, maybe even get to those pre-industrial levels of 280 parts per million, could the coming catastrophe be averted, or is it already in unstoppable play? Well, some parts are unstoppable, some aren't. Let's pretend that, that we just shut down all greenhouse gases right now. I mean, obviously, volcanoes are going to still do what volcanoes do, but let's go pre-industrial. As you know, we have lots of things that will take up carbon dioxide, and certainly the oceans have been really saving the collective human butt, if I can use that word, for some time now, because ocean is able to absorb so much of the carbon dioxide we produce. But we've already built into the sea level system, I believe it's from a half meter to as much as a meter of sea level rise that is in place, that whether we put another CO2 molecule in the atmosphere or not is still going to happen. We're still going to get that one meter rise. And there's nobody, no one, who thinks that we're going to be able to shut it all down. We can't shut down human population growth. We are what? We're heading towards 7 billion very quickly. And the best hope is we only hit nine nine billion. But there are a lot of people who still think we'll hit 11 billion. Even if we have entirely renewable resources, that many people is going to produce a huge footprint on this planet. So it's a race, really. It's a race between this population growth and the scientific and engineering, and if I dare say, the social fabric of our planet, where we get enough people in enough powerful enough positions to make the changes that are necessary. And then I go back once again to this most unfortunate U.S. Supreme Court decision, because if the U.S. backs out of even the pitiful amount of climate change understanding that this one accord was to put forward, why would India and China, which are the two other giant players, or even Europe as a whole, why would they go ahead and try to match U.S. goals here? So that, to me, this is, again, a watershed moment, and and not U.S. history, that too, but in global history. You know, I feel a sense of schizophrenia. Along with you, I see the signs that we are ruining the climate, that we need to live. But in the meantime, life can be lots of fun. I get up and do what most people do. How do you deal with that dichotomy? (laughs) Uh, There are good days and bad days, just like anybody else. And I think the best one can do is say, I don't have a magic wand, but I certainly have a footprint. And I just try to keep my footprint as small as I can, I have to tell myself to quit lecturing because I can be a scold and nobody likes to be a scold. I think the world can have many scolds as long as they hold out some hope. It's scolding without recourse to hope that I think is even a greater disaster. And as we wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to talk to us about? Maybe your current research or science that excites you? Anything? Well, the one thing I've been trying to do on on small scales is this is not saving the world, but it's trying to save one species. I began my work with the chambered nautilus, and I have been, over these last five years, been going out over and over and over again. There was an interesting news article on my work last summer called Rare Nautilus Seen After 30 Years. The sad, scary thing to me is that where that very strange, different nautilus, one that I named, in matter of fact, is called Nautilus, the other nautilus, is found around the eastern side of Papua New Guinea, a place called Manus Island. And 
Coincidentally, that area is about to be mined for the first time in enormous fashion by a Canadian company called Nautilus Minerals. How's that for irony? They're going to go down and grab up entire metalliferous hydrothermal vents from deep water. They have put out what I think is a ridiculous environmental statement saying that they will have no effect on the very fragile ecosystems out there. And they frankly just do not really seem to want to um, be criticized. So what got me going, two teenage kids, and then when they were grade school kids, started a website and a fundraiser called SaveTheNautilus.com. And what they're doing with that money is they have been funding researchers to go out and look at the chambered Nautilus and try to understand should it get more protections. Now, they funded part of my trips, but others as well. And this is, these are kids that are taking a dollar at a time from their friends and putting together little bits of money, but it's that sort of mentality. Let's go out and do what we can. And so they, they've inspired me to try to make a case for international protection of not just the Nautilus, that beautiful seashell, but lots of other invertebrates that don't get the press that the rhinos and the lions and tigers do. So savethenautilus.com, two kids trying to make a difference. It's a website. It's very inspiring. Okay, we've been speaking with Dr. Peter Ward. He's a paleontologist, professor at the University of Washington, author of more than a dozen books. His latest book is A New History of Life, The Radical New Discoveries About the Origins and Evolution of Life on Earth. I can't think of a more important topic. You can find my previous interviews with Peter and all sorts of follow-up links in my weekly show blog at ecoshock.info. Peter, thank you so much for joining us again. As always, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you. I've enjoyed it, too. I'm Alex Smith for Radio EcoShock. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. During these difficult times, please help your local nonprofit radio station keep going. These small stations always need volunteers and need your financial support to stay on the air. Call your station or head to the website to make your donation. That keeps Radio EcoShock pumping out to people who need it. The world economy is teetering. The weather is nuts and dangerous. So, let's talk about plankton. Those little critters in the ocean we never see produce most of the oxygen you are breathing right now. They are the bottom of the food chain for ocean life, and they are in trouble. Here to chat about all this is a regular EcoShock correspondent, climate scientist Paul Beckwith. Paul, welcome back. Hello, Alex. It's always great to be uh, talking with you. I appreciate it, too. You know, first of all, I was kind of shocked at what the word plankton really means. It's about as scientific as saying a zillion little things in the ocean we mostly can't see. You know, I mean, Paul... What is plankton, really? Well, plankton are, are very, very tiny plants. And like any other plants, they require carbon dioxide, they require sunlight, and they also require nutrients. So in the ocean, they only get that sunlight if they're near the surface of the ocean. And they get the nutrients uh, mostly from upwelling from deeper water levels. And of course, there's lots of CO2, and we're providing ever more amounts of CO2 for them. Right, and just to be clear for listeners, there is also zooplankton, the animal types of plankton, but we're not going to be talking about them in this show. 
Okay, so a lot of troubling and amazing science is coming out about plankton in just the past couple of years. Why do you think, Paul, scientists are working so hard on these tiny sea creatures? Well, phytoplankton, apart from being the base of the food chain in the oceans, and they are mostly consumed by the, the zooplankton, as you mentioned, the very tiny animal plankton, they provide lots of the oxygen in the air that we breathe. In fact, it was the evolution of plants on the planet which um, created the oxygen in our atmosphere that we breathe. And presently, it's believed that about every second breath you take is contains oxygen that is derived from uh, phytoplankton in the ocean. I didn't really appreciate just how big these fields of plankton, I would call them, are until I looked at some of the satellite photos. How would you describe these pools of sea life to people who haven't seen those photographs? Well, the CYFS satellite, for example, measures the colors on the surface of the ocean. And when you get these massive phytoplankton blooms, there's pigments in the in the plant material which contain uh, chlorophyll, which is a green color, which gives plants the green color. And so you see these vast areas that are shaded green or some types of plankton are brown, but they're different colors. If you have the open ocean and there's a, ver- a lack of plankton, then it's very, very clear. There's a lack of sediment and so on. Open ocean and it's stratified. If, for example, if it's very warm, the warm water's on top. There's not a lot of mixing with colder water down below. So there's not a lot in that water, so it's very, very clear. And it's that characteristic blue color that we see in the water when we go to the Caribbean, for example. That water is that color because of a lack of uh, phytoplankton for the most part. All right, well, you've kind of given us a hint about this, but where are the biggest masses of plankton on Earth? Where do they thrive? Well, the biggest masses are large masses in areas where there is upwelling. So, for example, off the western coast of the United States, you have the Pacific Current, which is going southward along the coastline. And because of deflection from the Coriolis force rotation of the Earth, it deflects to the right, so it pulls away from the coastline. And in its place, water comes up. Water is forced up to replace the water that's pulling away. And that water coming up comes from its deeper water, colder water that contains lots of nutrients. So so those nutrient-rich regions then stimulate the phytoplankton blooms, which stimulate the zooplankton blooms to eat them, and then the larger fish and all the way up the food chain, they will go to that area and you get a proliferation of marine life and great fishing, great food supply for humanity from these regions. So anywhere you get upwelling of ocean currents, you get very, very large amounts of plankton. So if you're in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, far from anything, and there's no reason for upwelling. I mean, there's always some mixing from winds and wave action and so on. But if you don't get geographic features to give you upwelling, then then you the water will generally be clear and be lacking phytoplankton. Now, according to a study in 2010, we've already lost about 40% of the plankton in the world oceans. Could you tell us about that study, please? Yeah, so this study, it's by uh, Boyce et al., came out around the end of July 2010, and it was titled something like Global Phytoplankton Decline Over the Past Centuries. So it it divided the ocean up into 10 regions, 
and it looked at the decline in each of these regions, both from satellite information going back to the late 70s and then prior to that from measurements that they had from measurements of, for example, dragging nets through the ocean, measuring the, the plankton, depending on the mesh size of the nets and things like that. And they came up with a figure of about a 40% decline since 1950 to 2010 when the study was published. So that indicates a cumulative rate of about 0.86% decline per year in the levels since 1950 to give you that 40% decline over that uh, 60-year time period. Well, now I'd read that, but then I got a little tidbit in a newsletter from Jim Thomas of the ETC group saying the loss might not be as great as thought. Uh, The disappearance of plankton may be partly due to misreading satellites. And Jim cited the paper, Reevaluating Ocean Warming Impacts on Global Phytoplankton. That was published in the journal Nature Climate Change on October 26, 2015. Did you have a look at that paper? And what do you think? Yes, I did have a look at that paper, and that paper is is fascinating, and it's it's very hopeful. The argument of that paper is that the the root cause of the um, changes in the ocean is the increasing heat that's being absorbed in the ocean, and that um, warmer sea surface temperature, the warmer water is lighter, so it tends to float easier on the surface, and therefore it inhibits vertical mixing. But those temperature changes will influence a number of things. So this recent paper that you, that you mentioned talks about the idea of the, I guess previous studies have assumed that if you measure chlorophyll, then that's a direct relationship to the amount of plankton that are there creating that color, that contain that chlorophyll. But this paper is saying that the actual nature of the phytoplankton can be changing because the water is warmer and the nutrient levels are warmer And for example, the phytoplankton can still be there in large quantities, but if they're getting lighter of color, if they have less chlorophyll and they're getting lighter, then the satellites would detect them as being in lower concentration when they actually might be there doing their photosynthesis, but uh, not registering on the satellite. I mean, one thing for sure is we need a lot more studies and a lot more information on this because... We think that most of the photosynthesis in plants goes on in, in the chlorophyll, the chloroplasts, which create, you know, contain chlorophyll, which create that green color. So if the green color is not there, there can be more phytoplankton there, but maybe the photosynthesis level is, is lower. So there's things called photoacclimatization, where when plants are exposed to a brighter environment, then the efficiency of the photosynthesis process is increased, so therefore the plants can have less centers where they're doing that photosynthesis, for example. Um, We know if the CO2 levels are different in the atmosphere, if they're higher, plants tend to evolve to have fewer stomata, which is the area where the gas is exchanged with the plant, because they can extract energy more efficiently from the photosynthetic process. They don't need as many sort of centers of photosynthesis. So in that case, this is what's going on. We're seeing the interaction of the biosphere, more specifically the uh, flora, the uh, plants that are changing. And also, you know, you have to look at how the animals can also be changing, because if there's more uh, phytoplankton that are being produced, for example, then there can be more feeding done from the zooplankton. 
it's all it all enters into the equation. But this study is showing that, I mean, this is a very very key thing. I mean, obviously, if these phytoplankton produce 50% of the oxygen that we breathe, we need to really find out all about their cycles and and the levels and how they're affected by not only ocean temperature but also ocean acidification because certain phytoplankton like diatoms are based on silicon dioxide sort of backbone or shell, very small of course, but a glass lattice and that isn't affected so much by the pH dropping of the ocean by the ocean acidification. And those are large plankton, but other smaller plankton like cocolithophores or forams, foraminifers, those phytoplankton require a the calcium carbonate backbone and of course as the pH of the ocean is dropping it's harder for them to form their shells so so you would expect with acidification that those plankton would be affected more than others but there was a recent study a third study was actually looking specifically just at the diatom levels and it reported that the uh, diatoms, which are the phytoplankton based on the silicon dioxide or glass latest shell, had been declining in the northern hemisphere by about 1% per year from 1998 to 2012. And this, this was a global study, and they found that the decline was largest in the North Pacific, the North Indian Ocean, and the Equatorial Indian Ocean. And these diatoms are, are, are much larger phytoplankton than the calcium-based ones. So there's a lot of different components that are going on here, and I don't think we have a, ver- a clear picture. But the paper that you refer to would indicate, you know, if, the, if it's actually more of a color change than a phytoplankton number change, then the drops may be more like 7 or 8% relative to 1950. Between 2010 and 1950, it might be a much smaller decline than that 40%. So that would be very hopeful if, if that was the case. Well, as you say, we'll have to find out. We need more research because it's very important stuff. This is Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith with my guest, Canadian climate scientist Paul Beckwith. You know, Paul, it's odd for me to say I'm talking with a Canadian climate scientist. So many of them were more or less banned from talking with the media by former Prime Minister Stephen Harper. I had to call someone in England or the United States to find out what Canadian climate scientists were doing if they had any government funding or hope of that. I guess we're going to go through a big change with a different Prime Minister. Yes, hopefully, you know, lots of people, lots of these climate scientists that lost employment, you know, in the last decade, that some of them are stayed in, you know, moved to other countries and stayed in, in you know, maybe Australia is not the great, great, but they'll be coming back from Australia if some of them were there because they had, you know, big cuts, uh, or they're talking about big cuts at their Cicero Science Institute. But uh, it, it's actually, it actually amazes me that, you know, how little we really know and understand some of these processes in the ocean that are so important to sustaining life on this planet. Like phytoplankton are actually quite amazing creatures and it's estimated that the mass of all the phytoplankton on the planet is about half of the biomass on on the earth and and that that you know that's amazing how can something so small be you know, have such a large component. So I don't know. I mean, I've seen that number and I've, you know, tried to confirm it. Maybe some of the listeners can um, look into that. And also I've heard things that the, 
like so during the day when the sun is shining, the phytoplankton are proliferating on the surface, and during the night, the zooplankton that generally hang out down in the in the water column, maybe a hundred meters down, they generally uh, migrate upwards at night and do their feeding at night, and and that migration of the zooplankton up to the surface is the largest migration of animals on the planet. <laughs> so, so you know, these things are happening every day and most people are really, you know, unaware of that they are happening and that they're extremely important to uh, all life on this planet. Well, let's move up to the Arctic, Paul. It's been kind of a specialty area for you. Do you think Arctic superwarming and the loss of sea ice has affected plankton there? Well, definitely at both poles, the loss of glacial ice from, say, Greenland and Antarctica has a big impact on phytoplankton because that ice uh, actually um, stores up a lot of nutrients over time. And uh, so dust particles um, falling on the ice, getting embedded in the ice, build up. And as it melts, they're they're in the meltwater that goes out to sea, and they're high in nutrients. So if an iceberg uh, breaks off, say, cows off uh, Greenland or Antarctica and travels through the ocean, then uh, to melt, travels to to lower latitudes, then it can leave a trail uh, hundreds of kilometers long of phytoplankton in in the wake of of the iceberg because as it's melting, the nutrients are all coming off and stimulating the phytoplankton growth there. In terms of the sea ice melting back and the snow cover melting back in the Arctic becoming a lot darker, the seawater is getting a lot warmer. Generally in the Arctic, there's very good mixing. You don't get stratified layers of water like you do at lower latitudes. Um, you do get some layers of higher, um, for example, fresh water floating on top of the, the saltier seawater. Um, you can get cases where you have warm water being of higher density than colder water because of a big salinity difference. So then some of the warmer water can be deeper down and the colder water can be at the surface. And you get some things like that happening. But generally, you don't have a barrier to vertical mixing. So you get lots of vertical mixing. Now, what you do have, of course, if you have the sea ice and snow cover on top of the sea ice, then the light is not able to penetrate into the seawater. So that really inhibits the phytoplankton growth. There are some types of phytoplankton that grow on the undersurface of the ice. And of course, as the ice thins and you can you can get more phytoplankton growing on the underneath the ice because you get more light penetration and then that will contribute as a positive feedback to melting more ice also at the edges of the ice there's lots of phytoplankton and lots of sea life and you know that's where the ring seals go and that's where the polar bears used to used to feed off when the ice was sturdy enough to hold them but of course that's all changing now so the arctic ecosystem is changing uh, more quickly than any other region on the earth and as part of the seawater over the eastern Siberian Arctic shelf have warmed 5 to 7 degrees above normal, and these currents extend down, this, this warm water extends down to the seafloor, which is a big concern for thawing out uh, methane clathrates and increasing methane emissions in the Arctic. So it, you really need to look at all of the aspects. I know you're, you want me to just talk about phytoplankton, but I have to bring in all of these other elements into our discussion as well. Yeah, that's the environment they live in, so I can see how all of those could be factors. What do you think, Paul, of this paper by Sergei Petrovsky, who found that with enough warming, there could be a massive die-off of phytoplankton, uh, the plant type of plankton that provides most of our oxygen, as we've said? 
Yes, well, I mean, there, there's a number of factors that, that cause that. And I think, I guess, I guess the, the largest factor is that the warming of the water, again, stratifies it. So it really decreases the concentration of nutrients that make it to the surface water where the phytoplankton are growing. So they don't have the food supply, so they just don't uh, grow as quickly or as large or as fast. And of course, the other thing is that like any other plant, there's an optimum temperature range over, over which the yields from plants is the highest. And generally, as you increase temperature, if they grow faster and and larger and quicker, and then they reach a threshold and then and then they drop very, very quickly and you reach a temperature where they're just too stressed to grow. And another thing is the ecology of, of the growth. So the types of phytoplankton, there's many different types of phytoplankton and the different ratios between the different types changes. And it, what we tend to see in the Arctic as we get warming is that we get a tendency to get to smaller and smaller phytoplankton. That's true not just with the plants, but also with animals and things. Um, so we're seeing um, these massive changes, and it's really, it's, it's really, you know, some of the interactions are, are quite complex. But we need to, we need to understand uh, what's happening in order to make make any predictions of where where we're heading to. Say, if we go to a completely blue ocean event where there's no sea ice at all. Yeah, and then, as you'll recall, a private promoter named Russ George experimented with dumping iron filings into the sea to feed the plankton off the island of Haida Gwaii on Canada's west coast. It is geoengineering. Do you think we will end up trying to remedy the lack of nutrients to save the plankton? Well, yes, that's a very good question. Of course, that experiment with the iron, I mean, it worked. It generated enormous phytoplankton blooms. And for the subsequent two years after that was done, there were record salmon runs in that region. And many scientists are reluctant to relate them, but I think it's very clear that uh, record salmon runs, they're clearly related to the increase in phytoplankton in that region. So how do we get the nutrients? If we can get the nutrients from below, you know, 100 meters below the surface up to the surface, then we can stimulate these phytoplankton blooms in the open ocean in vast regions of the Pacific, for example, that are considered deserts in terms of uh, lack of uh, sea life. So, for example, there's ideas where you construct a large tube that you suspend several meters below the surface, and it's connected to a buoy that's floating on the surface, and then ocean waves lift up the buoy. So the buoy will move up and down with the ocean waves. So it will pull the pipe up and down. And if you have a one-way valve at the bottom of it, then you can use the wave energy to basically pull water up from about 100 meters or 200 meters below. And that water being pulled up will be colder and will contain lots of nutrients and could stimulate a phytoplankton bloom in that region. And then, for example, if you had other structures in the ocean water nearby, you could start getting other other marine life growing on those structures, et cetera. So create sort of like an artificial reef in the middle of the ocean. And there's actually been some work done, you know, on, on that sort of concept of stimulating phytoplankton growth. Also, if you had, uh, for example, wind turbines in, in the ocean and that had pumps and pumped water up from depth, that could stimulate phytoplankton blooms and, and things like that. So I wouldn't be surprised. In fact, I think that we, you know, I think I've talked about the three-legged bar stool. We need to do carbon dioxide removal. And I think that is, is one of the most promising methods to do carbon dioxide removal, to to get nature, sort of it's biomimicry, if you like, uh, trying, how do you get nature to work in your favor? 
Speaking of impacts on the food chain, I've seen a lot of news lately about the die-off of sea mammals and sea birds on the west coast of North America. We get thin, sick whales washing up or starving sea lions or masses of dead birds from Alaska all the way down to California. And I know some of my listeners attribute this to radiation from Fukushima, but I'm wondering, Paul Beckwith, could the trouble be really with plankton off the west coast? Yeah, I I think a lot of the problem is because of the plankton, would be my view. The oceans are enormous, although there's huge amounts of radiation that has been dumped continuously from Fukushima, you know, tons and tons of water. I mean, it's just like an open loop. They bring in the seawater to cool and then send it right back out into the ocean. I mean, as horrible as that is, the ocean is still diluting lots of that, you know, that radiation. So I would say it's much more plausible that the die-off of these creatures is due to their general lack of food supply. And it's been exacerbated this year, of course, by the massive El Nino, which is still very powerful and will continue to be strong uh, probably at least for the next three or four months, I would guess. Uh, maybe longer. It's, uh, of course, been in record strength and it's still continuing. So it's affecting climate and water temperatures and stuff, you know, globally, conditions globally. So, and we also saw the so-called warm blob, you know, just south of the Bering Strait for extended periods of time. And then we saw a very, a very warm blob just off California that was contributing to that drought. And that's been sort of persistent for many years. And then we saw the buildup of the very strong El Nino, which initially amplified those other warm blobs. and then, But now um, they've essentially pretty much disappeared. And it'll be interesting to see if they recover. So so we have the El Nino on top of the uh, global warm, on top of the global warming, the, the the abrupt climate change. We're definitely seeing ocean patterns changing, ocean currents changing, uh, both in the Pacific Ocean and in the Atlantic Ocean. And that study that I mentioned that looked at the uh, diatoms from 1998 to 2012 globally talked of the. I think the North Pacific was the region where the there was the largest drop of diatoms and followed by North Indian Ocean and Equatorial Indian Ocean. So it's, it's, we have all these things going on which are affecting the, uh, the marine life. And you just did a video on YouTube on plankton, and that's unusual for you. It's not like your other communications on the Arctic and methane and jet stream changes and all that. What spurred you to talk to folks about plankton? Well, you know, I've been aware of this study um, with the 40% decline, and I'd seen some articles about the Indian Ocean, about the decline of phytoplankton in the Indian Ocean. I kind of remembered that that was a region where I thought there was still there was a, a proliferation of phytoplankton. So then I started digging a bit, and came across the paper about the northern hemisphere changes, and also about some of the new satellite sensors and what they're doing and so on. So I thought I'd look into that and uh, because, of course, it's a you know, very important area. Of course, that got me really thinking about oxygen levels in the atmosphere, like what's happening with them. I mean, I have done a little bit of research in the past on what the oxygen levels are doing in the atmosphere, of course, because if we're losing that much phytoplankton, then, that we, then definitely the oxygen level should be dropping. But, you know, fortunately, oxygen is not a trace gas. You know, it makes up 21% of our atmosphere, you know, 78% nitrogen, a little bit of argon, and then you have the trace gases, uh, greenhouse gases are still trace gases. 
you know, the, the increased combustion of burning of fossil fuels is obviously using up oxygen because when we burn something, it's basically carbon reacting with oxygen, producing carbon dioxide. So it uses up oxygen. So, but the, as the greenhouse gases, as CO2 grows, you know, say from 300 to 400 ppm, that's a rise of, you know, 100 parts per million. And if you have a drop of oxygen of 100 parts per million, it won't even show up, you know, it, I mean, we go down from 21% to, uh, you know, lose 100 parts per million. You're not even going to notice it, right? Uh, you know, as you go up to a higher altitude, the oxygen level drops, right? So you're not even going to notice it. But I think with some of these smart sensors that people are starting to produce, I mean, it would be great to carry a device which measured the oxygen level and the CO2 level and the methane level on sort of a watch size device. And then if we had metrics like that, instrumentation like that, it would make people a lot more aware because, go, you know, walk next to a highway and I'm sure the oxygen level is nowhere near 21%. It's probably 10 or 15%. You know, you start getting headaches and stuff. It's not just from the noxious fumes, but it's from the, you know, the, the combustion of all, the, all those cars combusting the, you know, burning, <laughs> burning the oxygen in the air in your particular region. So I'm going to do a, a video very, very shortly about all about the oxygen levels because the earth has gone through periods where oxygen levels were about double what they are. Well, not double. I mean, right now we're 21%. During the Carboniferous, when there was no ice on the planet and, and things were much greener, you know, we had green coverage everywhere, the biomass was enormous, we had about 30% oxygen in the atmosphere. Whereas in other periods, we've had as little as uh, 13 14 15% at surface level in the, uh, on the planet. And of course, the, these you know, affect things a lot. When the oxygen was 30%, the atmospheric pressure was higher. And of course, it changes the morphology of animals. For example, insects were enormous at that time, and it was very easy for things to fly because the atmosphere was thicker. So the metabolism was completely different because less energy would need to be expended by animals to extract the oxygen out of the air that they needed because the oxygen levels were much higher. So therefore, you know, more of the animal would be developed and in, in, there'd be less um, muscle, less systems in the animal to extract oxygen from the air it would be a lot easier. So therefore, you know, the animals could be much bigger, for example. So I'm looking at some of these aspects right now. I find, I find it's, it's quite fascinating. All right, we've got to wrap up at this point. Tell listeners about your new website and about the videos that you've been posting on YouTube. Yeah, so if you haven't, uh, please have a look at paulbeckwith.net and peruse the menus. And I do post, uh, I try to do a new video every, you know, every few days or so and post it up onto the website and put all lots of other stuff there. So please have a look at that. And uh, also you can find me easily on Facebook and Twitter and and uh, many different places on, on the web. We've been talking with the one and only Paul Beckwith. He's got two master's degrees, and that's while he's working on his Ph.D. at the University of Ottawa in climate science. Paul is a great communicator. You can check out his YouTube channel, his new website at paulbeckwith.net. I'll put links to that and his very active Facebook page in my Radio Ecoshock blog at ecoshock.info. Thanks again. I love listening to you talk, Paul. I really do. Well, thank you, Alex. It was a pleasure. I'm Alex Smith for Radio EcoShock. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. 
Next week, Radio Ecoshock covers the coming phenomenon of food shock. That isn't about doomer fantasies. The warning comes from government-funded institutions and serious scientists. Be sure to tune in to our Food Shock show next week. If you missed something from today's show, you can download it and listen again all for free from my show blog at ecoshock.info or just listen on the audio page at soundcloud.com slash radioecoshock. Notes for this program with lots of links to follow up are published every Wednesday at ecoshock.info. We are out of time. I'm Alex Smith. Thank you for listening again this week and for caring about our world. <laughs>